0: Tonight, John chapter 1, verse 18, the last uh, of our series that we are looking at here at the Christmas season. Verse number 18 is the verse that we're going to look at just by itself tonight. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. This is a great passage. Let's uh, talk to our Lord first. Heavenly Father, again, thank you for your word, and thank you for the chance to look into it this evening. There's a great passage in front of us, and we certainly need your help with this, uh, for it goes even beyond what we mentally can conceive when we start talking about you. Thank you for giving it to us, though, to challenge us with it. And, and I pray, Lord, that we bring home something from this study that will benefit us, uh, work into our life, and, and be applicable and and useful in a way that uh, we can bring you honor and glory from what we learn. So help us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, maybe you've uh, thought the title of this whole series was kind of curious, uh Seeing God, that's, you know, something that maybe uh, other people would, uh, you know, a vision of this or that or something like that. And, and yet, once we have just read this verse, that's a very curious title on top of it, because the last verse of the series, Seeing God, says no one has seen God at any time. <laughs> so it's kind of a, a interesting combination, huh? Describing God, as you know, is quite a difficult thing to do. There are, are many, many attempts at defining God. And that's just trying to define Him. Add to that trying to define the Trinity on top of that. And now you're getting really technical and complicated. And, and even with the easiest uh, descriptions we come up with, like uh, the Trinity's like an egg. You've got the shell, you've got the white, and you've got the yolk and all kinds of different ways that they've attempted. No one's done uh, complete justice to it. Defining God, though. Here I'm going to read to you a paragraph from the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's the description of God. All right? There is but one only living and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, Abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, excuse, me, <coughs> transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness, in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom... Are all things, and hath most sovereign domin- dominion over them, to do by them, for them, and upon them whatsoever Himself pleaseth. In His sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing, so as nothing, is to Him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, in all his commands to him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them Wow, that's a lot isn't it? That almost needs to be read in high pitch, quick like the the little lawyer's clips at the end of a commercial um That would be just along that kind of a line. That's a lot of words. I I think of that and how complicated that is and the time that had to have been invested in that. And then I think on the other hand of the story that I know I've said here before of the little uh, uh, school kid who was drawing a picture of God. And his teacher said, well, you can't do that. No one has ever seen God. He says, when I'm done, they will. And I thought, that's so simplistic. <laughs> and then there was a an email I had received from one of my students last year, and it just says right across the top there, uh, a quote that she got from a, a child in an Awana club. And uh, the quote was, God is so God. <laughs> I said, well, there it is, too. Sometimes little ones are more theologians than we who have attempted it for so long. Um But there is a desire in man to see God. There is. We, We would like to. Maybe sometimes it's curiosity or such, but we've known him for quite some time now, haven't we? We've read his word. We love him. We worship him. I've seen him. Hmm. That would be a treat. That would be a special thing. What does this verse express? The desire we have is to see him, and no one has seen God at any time. The way it begins. Let's talk about Moses for a few minutes. Moses, back in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse number 10. Since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Now it says the Lord knew him face to face. Right? But when we go to Exodus 33, we have that very familiar passage when Moses wanted to see him. Right? Let's go over there. Some great verses here. Exodus 33, starting in verse number 20. Well, no, let's back up. Let's get more of the story here. Moses is interceding for the people in the midst of this conversation. Uh... He says, Lord, I want to know that your favor is with me. He keeps bringing up that point. I want to know that your favor is with me, that your favor is with me. If your presence doesn't go with us, I don't want to go. And the Lord shows him that he still has uh the Lord's favor. And he says in verse 17, the Lord says to Moses... I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Now Moses clutches to that statement, and he says this, right on the heels of it. I pray you, show me your glory. He had just received news that the Lord's favor was with him, and now he he takes it to that. He says, I want to see. And he said to him, in verse 19, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it shall, be, it shall come about while my glory is passing by. I will put you in the cleft of a rock, cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will let take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Quite a scene, huh? Would you have liked to have been there? Or would you have been just a slight bit nervous at that moment when he says, okay... This is all you're going to get to see. That's a fascinating little section. If you back up to verse number 11 in this same passage, it says, The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. I like that phrase. Would Would you consider yourself to be a friend with God? Think that through. We're dependent on Him, right? Like children, and sometimes as... As children, we don't sit and think, uh, am I a friend with my parent? You know, we we don't generally think that way. And maybe we generally don't sit and think, am I a friend of God? Is God my friend? Uh, Am I his friend? That's an interesting question. Am I his friend? This is a a neat phrase. I, I like it so much when he says that God spoke to him face to face just as a man speaks to his friend. Who else in Scripture was called a friend of God? Well, David, Abraham, Abraham was called a friend of God, right? Just interesting that that phrase pops up here. Now, with that, still, Moses didn't see his face. Says, no man could see my face and live. Go over to uh, Judges chapter 6. While we're in the Old Testament for a little while here. Judges chapter 6. This is a great little passage about Gideon. Now Gideon, uh, in verse number 11, was visited by the angel of the Lord. It says that the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in uh, Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Bezerite as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Why are... All his miracles, where, where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of, the, of Midian. <coughs> the Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? And he said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. So Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight. Notice that phrase popped up again, didn't it? Favor, favor. Have I found favor? Then show me a sign that it is you who speak to me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to you and bring my offering and lay it before you. And he said, I will remain until you return. Then Gideon went in, and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread uh, from an ephod of flour, and put the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot, and brought them out to him under the oak and presented them. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay it on this rock and pour out the broth. So he did. And the angel of the Lord put the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight When Gideon saw this he was saw that he was the angel of the Lord he said alas O Lord God for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face What was his first thought I'm doomed right <laughs> I just saw the angel of the Lord face to face, and the Lord says, Peace to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Now, the reaction is, is really great. His, his, I've seen his face, and I'm going to die. Didn't that angel just give him instructions about what he was supposed to be doing? Go out and bat, battle, and don't worry, you're going to win, I, I'm with you, and all these other things. Why would he change it now? But the reaction is kind of funny. You forget all about the things he said you need to go and do, and think, well, he just came to kill me. <laughs> he showed me his face, I'm done. This is very much like uh Samson's parents. I love this story especially. Judges 13. If you go over just a few pages here. Judges chapter 13, starting in verse number 9. These are the parents of uh uh Samson. Now, An angel came first, talked to his wife. And Manoah didn't like that so much. He wanted to hear it straight from the angel. He didn't want to hear it from his wife. Um, So in verse number 9, God listened to the voice of Manoah. Manoah had prayed, Lord, if, if it really was a message from you, then send that man of God again so I could talk to him. Apparently he didn't believe what his wife had told him. So, Uh, God listened to the voice of Manoah. The angel of God came again to the woman as she was sitting in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came the other day has appeared to me. Then Manoah arose and followed his wife, and when he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he says, I am. And Manoah says, Now when your words come to pass, what shall be the boy's mode of life and his vocation? So the angel of the Lord said, Let the woman pay attention to all I said. She should not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. Let her observe all that I commanded. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you so that we may prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was an angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, "What is your name, so that when your word comes to pass, we may honor you." The angel of the Lord said to him, "Why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful?" So Manoah took a, grain, a young goat and the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord. He performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. It came about when the flame went up from the altar toward heaven. The angel of the Lord ascended in the flame on the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. Now the angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah, or to his wife again. Then Manoah knew that this was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We will surely die, for we have seen God. His wife is very, very practical right here. I love this next phrase. This is great. You almost need to insert some words. Something like, oh come on. <laughs> if if the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands. Nor would he have shown us all these things. Nor would he have let us hear these things at this time. <laughs> Very practical, right? Why would he kill us after he just told us all these plans? But he was all wrapped up. I saw God's face. <laughs> I'm doomed. I'm doomed. Moses wanted to see him. Gideon got a glimpse. Manoah, his reaction to these last two, especially we speak of the angel of the Lord. A very specific title in the Old Testament. you have notice that pops up often in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord. That is what we call a theophany. An appearance of God in a visible way. In a way that man can see. A theophany. A direct visual visual manifestation of the presence of God. Um, He used many different ways, but he especially liked to use the angel of the Lord. Now that's kind of interesting because you've got Exodus where God says, "...you cannot see my face, nor can man see me and live." In Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, there's a a verse in verse 16 that says, About God, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man can see, has seen, or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. That's quite a phrase. He dwells in unapproachable light. And then in 1 John 4.12, no one has seen God at any time. John writes that. If we love one another, God abides in us. But Theophanies, you go back to the Old Testament, and you talk about God uh, appearing to people in the form of the angel of the Lord. We have examples of that. The burning bush. We have examples of that. in The pillar of of cloud, the pillar of fire, uh, the Shekinah glory. Uh, we have examples of that. But the angel of the Lord is unique. The angel of the Lord, how do I know he's not just any angel? How do we know that he is actually God in the form of an angel? Well, there are three telltale signs that angels will not do this, but God does. Alright? One of them, <coughs> excuse me, angels always speak their message from the third person. The Lord has said. The Lord has said. They're messengers, right? So they come with the message. The Lord has said this. The Lord has said that. So they speak in the third person. When the angel of the Lord speaks, he always says, I have said. I have said. There's quite a difference in just the the manner of the message. The angel takes on some incredible authority, from his own self. A second thing that angels never do, unless they're evil, except worship. When somebody attempts to worship an angel, a good angel, they stop him. and say, oh no, you don't. Uh, you don't do that. John got in trouble for that <laughs> at, at times. But others had tried to worship angels. They said, no, you don't do that. You only worship God. Now Satan wants worship, doesn't he? He's been after that one for quite some time. He even tempted Jesus to do that. Uh, but a good angel will not accept worship. When the angel of a Lord, the Lord accepts worship, it's not an ordinary angel. Only God accepts worship. A third thing is something also quite unique, in that once in a while you find the angel of the Lord forgiving sin. And even the Pharisees knew in the New Testament, only God forgives sin. They used that line against Jesus one day. Only God forgives sin. And then they realized, well, probably after they died. (laughs) But that was God they were talking to when they were talking to Jesus. But once in a while, the angel of the Lord forgives sin. So you put all the evidence together and what you come out with is the angel of the Lord is God in an angelic form. And what is also very curious is, that after the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord does not appear again. What does that suggest to us as well? God himself, God the Father, is a spirit. He doesn't take on human or any kind of form. The Holy Spirit once in a while will take on a dove, or a flame of fire or something, but you don't see him in human form. Which of the Godhead, Father, Son, or Spirit, has ever taken on human form? The Son. Putting the theology together, who was the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament? It was Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. A theophany. God appearing to man. Most of the time they had no idea who this was until that last moment when, the sacrifice went up in flame and up he went with them and they said, (gasps) We just saw God. <laughs> and they thought they were in big trouble, right? Because they had that moment where they saw him. Now, the phrase says, no one has seen God at any time. That word seen here is important in John. It really is. It's key to, I believe, the whole passage of, of what they're trying to say. No one has seen God at any time. Let's go back over there and, and work on this word for a minute. The word seen. Seen. Parao is a Greek word. It only translates in the perfect tense. My students always uh, get kind of messed up with this one because I always teach them all present tenses first. Present tense. We just say present tense so much as it's natural. We just say present tense. And, and then when we switch to a new tense, they're all messed up because now they have to think before they answer the question. <laughs> what well, it's not present tense anymore, is it? So they have to think through. But this word pops up in their vocabulary very early. Harao is a perfect tense verb. And they can't get their... their Mind wrapped around that because we don't study that for a long time in our our study. It's way second semester toward the end. They actually see what a perfect verb is. That is a very strong statement. That it's more than just seeing something like with your eyes. Like I saw this, I saw that. It's the idea of perceiving something to understand it and see it fully. All right, it's a powerful word. Hora'o. very powerful word. I. Fully, I perfectly see Him. That's the word that John is using here. No one has perfectly, in wisdom or in vision, no one has completely seen God. I don't think our eyeballs can handle that. (laughs) Since He is eternal, how do we even wrap around eternal? When we live by clocks and calendars. How can we perceive a God who is bigger than vision itself? But the verse itself says, no one has seen God. And that's a concept of completeness, a perfect understanding. Who really knows Him that well? In the Old Testament, that question is raised several times. Where man starts to get a little cocky and prideful, and God says, okay, I'll sit down and you tell me a few things. Where were you when I formed the... You know, he goes through that with Job and others. Uh, he told them that, well, you're not as wise as you really think. But sometimes we get a little ahead of ourselves and think, well, we know these things. But one of the condemnations that Jesus set against the religious le- re- uh, leaders of his day was that they did not see the Father. They did not know Him. They could not perceive Him. These were religious leaders. They'd grown up with the the Old Testament text. They were supposed to know it inside and out. They were the teachers of the land. They were the leaders in spiritual things. And they did not see Him. They did not understand Him. Now, we would say, well, then why did you trust them to be leaders? I mean, if you if you drive a Toyota, you take your car to a Toyota dealer to get it fixed, and that guy's never seen a Toyota in his life. Do you feel confident? Not at all. If you take a spiritual thing to a man who doesn't understand God, is that going to help you much? That was a condemnation Jesus brought against the religious leaders all the time. A couple of dialogues in John chapter 5. He's in the midst of that dialogue with them, and in verse 37 he says, And the Father who sent me has testified to me, you have neither heard his voice, nor at any time, or seen his form. He condemned them for that, that they did not know. In John 6, verse 46, again a conversation with these same type of leaders. He says, Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. So he laid that charge against them, and I thought that's an interesting thing because we say, "Well, no one can see God, and yet what attempt have they ever made to get to know him? None that was the 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 charge laid at them. How much different is that than our population today? seeing God, knowing God. Yes, sin has covered our eyes, we cannot see. But knowing him, Isaiah's whole letter starts with a whole uh, with this one simple statement. He says, the ox knows its manger, or master, but you do not know me. What a comparison. <laughs> you're, you're, the ox knows more than you do. He understands, but you know nothing. And then in Jeremiah, these words are said, and I'm going to read these ones to you so I get them. Jeremiah chapter 9. He he also follows the same statement. I'll get there. Jeremiah chapter 9, and verse number 6. Your dwelling is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit, they refuse to know me. Isn't that interesting? Through deceit, they refuse to know me, God says. And then jump down to verse number 23, 24. 23 and 24. Thus the Lord says, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, not let a mighty man boast of his might, nor let a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. What a phrase that is. So what does that tell me? When I read the Old Testament, I see that, and the New Testament there, where the religious leaders are condemned for not knowing him. Jeremiah condemns them for not knowing them. Isaiah condemns them for not knowing them. That means that God is knowable. Right? We can know Him. And in that sense, the sense of the word hara'o, we can perceive things of Him. Yes, we're limited. But do we even put the effort out to understand to know, to 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 gain in our knowledge of this God. Well, the greatest event on this planet took place so that we could. God took on flesh. Isn't that John's whole point of chapter 1? He took on flesh because He knows, one, we want to see Him and know Him, and two, we don't and we can't. So He took on flesh to dwell among us. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. What we could not grasp otherwise, He did. Here's one quote. It's from uh, Kenneth Weiss. He's a Greek theologian, was a Greek theologian. And he wrote his own Uh, translation of the New Testament from the Greek. And I always like to go to him and see, how did he word this phrase? This is his rendering of verse 18. Absolute deity, in its essence, no one has yet ever seen. God's uniquely begotten, He who is in the bosom of the Father, that one fully explained deity. Quite a phrase, isn't it? The The actual word for this, he has explained him. You might have a different translation word there in front of you. It's the word exegete. He exegeted him. Uh, we we use that in hermeneutics uh, when we study. We have eisegesis and exegesis. And it depends on what you're going to use with the, the Scripture. For example, when I teach and preach to you, my desire is to take the Scripture... And bring it to you. Let the scripture say what it says, right? That's the goal. Let scripture say what it says and present it to you. That's exegesis, right? Jesus is, I've got the, my great idea and I'm going to put it into scripture. And so I even go looking for verses to match my ideas. So who do I start with there? Me, and my opinion. That's backwards. I don't want to do that. Matter of fact, I do it, shoot me, all right? uh, just get it over with but uh, uh, exegesis is taking it and bringing it out this is what the word is used here it literally is the word used here in this text what Jesus has done for us is not that he has imposed man's opinion on who God is he says I take from him and I lay it out before you he has explained him he has Set it out before us. Now that's a very gracious thing to do. Knowing that we could not understand. He is the one who's laid it out before us. And so we have his testimony all the way through the Gospels of who he is and and how we understand God because he has revealed him. He has revealed Him. The Amplified Version has this phrase. He has revealed Him and brought Him out where He can be seen. He has interpreted Him and He has made Him known. That's the great thing about the, the coming of Christ. The birth of Christ and all that we read of here in John chapter 1. He has explained the Father. He has explained the Father. We also know He's revealed the nature of God. He's shown us the power of God. He has shown us the wisdom of God. He has shown us the glory of God. He has shown us the life of God and the love of God. And He did all this, right? But this is what He said one day, just before He was crucified, up in the upper room. John 14. And, the, and, the, and you know the way I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no man comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. Then he goes on to say these. Also, from now on, you know him and have seen him. Isn't that cool? You have seen him. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. Jesus said, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak of my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Quite a statement, isn't it? Why? Why did this all have to happen like this? Why did Jesus come in the flesh so that He shows us the Father? Why was that all necessary? I'll show you just another verse to wrap up here. It's in John chapter 17. John 17. This is His prayer just before the cross. Powerful prayer. Someday we just got to stop and study this prayer. But in verse number 3, This is what it comes down to. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Talking to his father, he says, This sums up what this is all about. Why I came, why I'm to die why I am to rise again, why believe it in me, they, they come to this place, because it's about eternal life, right, this is it, what is it, eternal life, what is the result of that, that they may know you, that's his, been, his desire all along, to know you, to know you, to know you, so, he takes on a form, that can be seen, human flesh, he takes on a form that we can experience. We can understand it as human beings. He reveals to us perfectly who God is. Hebrews says He's the exact image of the Father, the image of God. He exhibits full likeness with the Father. This one phrase I think is pretty fascinating. Jesus' Godhood in his manhood is the key to our intimate knowledge of God. That's quite a phrase. Now, with all that understood, let's get to the end of the story. This has been just exciting when I saw this. Revelation 22. Revelation 22. As I was putting these thoughts together, this verse was prompted in my mind that I thought, it gives me goosebumps every time I think about it. Because we know Jesus Christ. We know we will be with Him in glory. We have faith in Him. We have received Him as our Savior. Now look at what's coming for us. Revelation 22. Then He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was a tree of life bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will be no longer any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb are in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. Isn't that a great verse? They will see his face. The same face that he told Moses, you can't see it and live. We will see it. Oh, I think it's just awesome. It gives me goosebumps. We shall see him. That that is why we go through a passage and say, seeing God is the perfect description of this passage. The struggle we have to understand God. We could not understand Him without Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came not only to reveal His Father to us, but to give us that eternal life that we could spend with Him forever. With His Father. That's what we look forward to. Isn't that exciting? I love it. Seeing God. Seeing God. That's what we have to look forward to we have a word of prayer and then we'll close with our song. Heavenly Father, wow, thank you for your word. For what you have planned for us is far beyond what we can really conceive. But Lord, that means the desire of our hearts that we may see you, that we may be with you, that there won't be the distractions and diversions of this life around us that there won't be the complications and condemnations of sin and the breaking of fellowship, the hurt, the pain, the tears, all those things will be wiped from our eyes and and set from our lives and there we shall stand in your presence forever and enjoy the beautiful fellowship that you have designed for us. All because We have a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who took on flesh to dwell among us, the one who is God himself, who has revealed to us God, that we may see. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you for what you have done. We give you the glory and the praise for all this. In Jesus' name, amen.